स्वामी निखिलानंद इज अ डिसाइपल ऑफ जगत गुरु श्री कृपालूजी महाराज ही रिजाइड एट राधा माधव धाम इन ऑस्टन टेक्सस विच इज द यूएस आश्रम ऑफ जगत गुरु कृपालू परिषद ही ट्रेवल्स अमेरिका प्रीचिंग द फिलोसफी ऑफ सनातन धर्म एज थॉट बाय श्री कृपालूजी महाराज इन दिस सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स स्वामी निखिलानंद एक्सप्लेन्स द थ्री पैथ्स टू गॉड कर्म ज्ञान एंड भक्ति He reveals the scriptural teachings behind each path and tells which path is the best one to follow. So far in this series on the three paths to God, I described about the path of karma and the path of gyan and told you that both of them are dependent on the path of bhakti. Neither one is complete. because both the karmi and the gyani have to surrender to god in order to attain their ultimate goal which is the same for every soul ultimate bliss of god and liberation from maya so to attain either of those or both of those everybody must do bhakti now after looking in detail at the path of karma and the path of gyan Yesterday I started telling you about the path of bhakti. And we learned that bhakti is actually a divine power of God. The bhakti which is sought after by all of the paramahansas, the gyanis and yogis, it's a divine power of God which is God's innermost most private power the topmost power in the divine world which even keeps god under its control naradji described about this divine bhakti called siddha bhakti in his narad bhakti darshan he said anirvachaniyam prema swarupam he said it's anirvachaniya it can't be described that divine power that cannot be described nonetheless he did tell us something he said amrita swarupa cha that divine bhakti or divine prem it is the form of god himself it's not separate from god and it lasts forever So once you attain that divine bhakti you remain in that divine state forever it's amrit He also said yallabdhwa puman siddho bhavati amrito bhavati tripto bhavati The vyakya of each of these sutras is very long I'm just giving you in gist What did he tell us about someone who attains that divine bhakti? He said they become siddh, they become amrit, they become tript. Siddh means perfect, but it means like uh, you know how when you're cooking rice, you don't want it to be undercooked, so there's some little hard bit left in the middle. You don't want it to be overcooked, so it becomes like halwa. you want it just in between so each individual piece of rice is perfectly well cooked soft but still existing individually so naraji is saying that the soul who attains divine love he's like that he no longer has the kankar that hard bit of maya inside of him that part is eliminated but he hasn't just lost his identity like when you overcook the rice that's like a soul who merges into formless god and gets liberation his apparent identity is lost so he doesn't that doesn't happen to him so he's perfectly well cooked it means he's free from maya he attains god but he maintains his individuality siddho bhavati amrito bhavati again it means that uh, prem that bhakti is amrit it never finishes it goes on forever so the bhakt becomes like that he also becomes the form of divine love tripto bhavati tripti means satisfaction but the interesting thing about the tripti 
that you get when you attain that divine power of God, there's pyas with the tripti. You're perfectly satisfied, yet you desire more. And that's why Naradji says, Pratikshana Vardhamanam. It goes on increasing. It's like, you know how the moon increases and when it gets to the full moon, then it starts decreasing. That's like the happiness of this world. It reaches a peak and then it levels off and then it starts decreasing. But Prem never has a Purnima. That divine Bhakti of God, you just go on enjoying it and it goes on increasing. It never reaches the point where it stops and becomes static. So you keep enjoying, yet you can keep desiring for more and experiencing more and more and more. So it's a divine kind of tripti. Yat prapya nakinchit dvanchati nashochati nadveshti naramate not Sahi Bhavati. Naradji says, the one who attains that divine bhakti, he never desires for anything ever again. Because he's Purnakam. All of his desires have been fulfilled because he got the ultimate thing. Once you're enjoying ultimate happiness, what's left to desire? You <laughs> just go on enjoying. So he has no desire left. Nashochati, he never grieves for anything ever again. Nadvaishti, he never feels enmity or hatred towards anyone ever again. Naramate, the enjoyments of this world, they're of no interest to him because it's like uh, a millionaire seeing a penny on the ground. Would he stoop to pick it up? It's of no value to him. Notsahi bhavati. He doesn't worry about what he's going to attain or not attain in the world. So he takes things as they come. Tat prapya tadeva valokayati tadeva shrinoti tadeva bhashayati tadeva chintayati. The one who has attained that divine bhakti, he just sees. Everywhere, his beloved form of God. He sees Prem everywhere. Tadeva Lokayati, he sees. Tadeva Shrinoti, that's all he hears. Tadeva Bhashayati, that's all he speaks. Tadeva Chintayati, that's all he can think. So he attains that divine state if he attains divine bhakti. But I explained to you yesterday that that divine bhakti is not attained through any practice, but rather there's another kind of bhakti, the bhakti that we have to do. And by doing that bhakti, we don't attain the divine bhakti, but we've become qualified to receive it. The bhakti we have to do is very similar to love in this world or attachment in this world. How does that work? You think positively about someone in an affectionate way and that builds an attachment in your mind. It's a very simple process. It doesn't happen on its own. There's no such thing as love at first sight. Attraction at first sight, yes. But love takes time. You have to build up an attachment. An attachment re requires repeated thinking in a positive way about that person or even about a thing. You can start desiring a thing if you think enough times about it. The more times you think about it, the more attached you get to it and the, more, the bigger that desire becomes and the more the desire keeps returning into your mind. So this same process of the mind is used for bhakti to God. You think about God positively. You visualize his form. Think about his divine beauty. Think about what it would be like to meet him in person. We'll talk more about all of these details in the days to come. 
But this is the bhakti we do where we just think of God in an affectionate way, as we would think of someone that we're related to in this world. So that's called sadhana bhakti. And by bringing God into our mind in that way, we're purifying our heart. So sadhana bhakti purifies the heart. And the means is very simple, as I said. Just bring God into your heart. Keep thinking about Him. By doing sadhana bhakti, we purify our heart or our mind, antahakarana, whatever you want to think of it. When it's fully pure, then we receive the divine bhakti. So that divine bhakti is a gift from God. Very simple. But it's only given into a heart which has been purified by doing sadhana bhakti. So we can't just say, okay God, you grace with the divine bhakti, then grace me. I'm not doing anything. I don't even have to do bhakti. No devotion, no sadhana. So God says, no, you have to do sadhana to purify your heart. Then I can give you that bhakti. And one other thing is that that bhakti is given through a God-realized saint. That's another key. Remember I told you when Sri Krishna wanted to grace Uddhav with that divine prem, he sent him to the gopis. So when great jnanis themselves need to receive that divine bhakti through the grace of a living rasic saint, then the same must be true for us. Those jnanis, as long as they're on the earth planet, they have a chance before they leave their body and merge into formless God, if they ever meet a true rasic saint. Rasic means the one who has experienced that divine bhakti and has attained it. So such a rasic saint can grace a jnani saint with bhakti immediately because their heart is already pure. And they can grace us with bhakti once our heart becomes purified. This is something that's really important to understand that that prem dan, it's called, when the God-realized saint in possession of bhakti gives that or passes that on to his disciple who has fully surrendered and has fully purified his heart. That is the true guru-disciple relationship. You see, nowadays a lot of people go and get mantras from gurus. But originally, what was, why was that mantra given? Saints did give mantras to their disciples, but you know when they gave it? They gave it when that disciple was fully ready to receive God-realization. So along with the mantra, there was power. So when that disciple received the mantra from the Guru, he became God-realized that instant. It's like you're building a house. And when you build the house, you do all the wiring and put all the fittings and everything and you get it ready. And when all of that is set, all the bulbs and switches are in place, then you connect the main wire from the telephone pole to your house and everything lights up instantly. Well, not quite instantly. It take, Electricity travels at the speed of light, right? So there's some delay. Now, when a, when a true disciple's heart is fully purified... The Guru gives that instantly. There's no delay. It happens instantly. But the disciple has to be ready. So this uh, idea of going to a Guru and getting a mantra. So if the Guru is really giving a mantra, shouldn't we feel something? You know, I'm taking you back to olden times when the Guru gave the mantra. That was the moment of God realization for that soul. So, it means that there should be some internal change when we receive that, right? However, we receive it and we feel the same. So, someone may say that, well, you weren't 
qualified to receive that mantra. That's why, well, well then why did he give it to me? A true saint can know is someone qualified or not. He's not ignorant like we are. So this is the true moment of God-realization. To get to that point, we have to do sadhana bhakti. When our sadhana bhakti, see, sadhana bhakti goes, as your heart purifies, you enter into bhao bhakti. Bhao bhakti means when your heart has purified to some degree, you start to really experience the closeness of God. Yatha yathatma parimrijyate sau mat punyagatha shravanabhidhanai tatha tatha vidadhatu tatha tatha chakshur yathaivanjana samprayuktam Bhagavatam says that the more your heart purifies by practicing sadhana, the more real your experience of God's closeness becomes. Let's say someone's worshipping Krishna. So they're meditating on Krishna in their mind. That meditation is not imagination because Krishna is omnipresent so he's right there before you but that becomes more that realization becomes more and more intense so when that feeling really starts to hit you that krishna is right here and when you visualize him in your meditation it feels real and you you get kind of a an inner feeling that goes with it that feeling is called bhao so that also is granted by the guru when someone's practicing sadhana bhakti with the guidance and grace of a true God-realized saint, that saint is able to grace the disciple with that bhao. So that goes on purifying the heart right up to complete heart purification. And then the instant the disciple's heart is fully purified, then the guru grants that divine bhakti. First, in fact, he makes the, the disciple's heart divine by giving him swarup shakti. That makes your whole senses, mind and intellect divine. Then into your divine mind, he gives you divine bhakti. So that's the process of God-realization. So again, we come back to the point that, you know, to reach that, what do we have to do? We have to do sadhana bhakti. And sadhana bhakti has been described in our scriptures very precisely. Lakshanam bhakti yogasya nirgunasya hyudahritam ahaitukyavyavahita ya bhakti purushottame bhagavatam. In this verse, the Bhagavatam tells three qualities of true sadhana bhakti. Rup Goswami in his Bhakti Rasamrit Sindhu mentions a very similar thing. Anya bhilashita shunyam jnana karmadhyana Anukulyena Krishna Nushilanam Bhakti Ruttama and Naraji in his Narad Bhakti Darshan also tells the same thing. Gunarahitam Tamanarahitam Pratikrana Vardhamanam Avichinam Sukchmataram Anubhava Rupam. So what actually in these verses four main things are mentioned. Conditions of real sadhana bhakti. So the first one mentioned in Bhagavatam is nirgunasya and mentioned by Rup Goswami as anyabhilashita shunyam. It means no other desire, only one desire for God. Ahaitukam means being selfless in your devotion to God. 
अव्यवहित मीन्स ज्ञान कर्माद्यनावृतम दट भक्ति इज इंडिपेंडेंट एंड शुड हैव एनी ओवर बेरिंग एडिशन ऑफ कर्म ज्ञान योग तपश्चर्या एनी अदर प्रैक्टिस एंड आनुकूल्यन कृष्णानुशीलनम we should worship krishna with positive feelings of attachment developing a, a relationship with him so we'll look at these four qualities and understand really specifically how do we apply that or how does that change the way we think about bhakti take number 1 kamana rahitam according to narad ji anya abhilasha शून्यम अकॉर्डिंग टू रूप गोस्वामी इट मीन्स जस्ट डिजायरिंग गॉड एंड वेन वी डू डिवोशन टू गॉड नॉट एस्किंग हिम फॉर एनी अदर थिंग दिस इज अ बिग वन सी एनी अदर थिंग वॉट डज इट मीन इट मीन्स अदर देन गॉड वॉट्स लेफ्ट What's left? Four things: dharma, arth, kam, moksha. I told you yesterday. Or you can say, sattvic desires, rajas desires, tamas desires, and the desire for liberation. These four things include everything else other than God. Someone may say, uh, "No, I only want to give up the desire for three things." Okay. take the same four things and make them into three the desire for happiness in this world the desire for happiness in swarg or the desire for liberation three things someone may say no i only want to give up two things okay take the same three things and make it into two things bhukti and mukti mukti liberation and bhukti means everything from this world up to the topmost abode of swarg that's the whole field of bhukti now out of those two bhukti and mukti mukti is the more dangerous one as i told you yesterday because if you get mukti you merge into formless god forever and then you'll never get a chance to attain divine bhakti so leaving aside mukti in fact how many people truly desire for mukti anyway <laughs> if we took a poll of people in the world and explain to them what is bhukti what is mukti bhukti meaning uh, enjoyments of this world or enjoyments of the celestial abodes and mukti meaning liberation from any experience at all never suffering again but never experiencing anything if you just walked up to any person on the street and asked him do you want that kind of liberation or do you want enjoyments of the world almost everybody is going to choose bhukti and most for most people mukti is like a very distant thing okay is it even possible they might be wondering but everybody desires for bhukti Now bhukti is less dangerous than mukti because bhukti keeps you in the cycle of birth and death under maya and it means that there's always a chance you're going to meet a true saint and through the grace of that saint end up setting your sights on bhakti divine bhakti and then you could attain that so from that point of view bhukti is better than mukti yet bhukti is still a badhak tatva for the devotee practicing sadhana bhakti now what i mean understand specifically because on the path of bhakti you are not required to renounce before you start i explain that everyone is qualified for bhakti no matter how attached they are in this world So don't ever think that oh I'm such a worldly person I have so many desires I can't do bhakti no you can everybody can do bhakti what i mean specifically is that when you're doing bhakti don't ask god for bhakti 
or mukti, but we're leaving mukti aside. Don't ask him for bhukti. That's what it means. Your mind is still going to be attracted to the world. That is just the nature of the mayic mind. Leave that part aside. The thing is that the great majority of people who do devotion to God do ask God for worldly things. Now, is this a bad thing? Well, on one hand, no. I mean, at least the person is thinking of God. Then why do our scriptures tell us not to ask God for worldly things? Like in Vedas, it's written, Upasate purusham ye hyakama. Do upasana to God without any desire or demand from Him. Upasana means upasana, two words combined, which literally means to go close to God. Asan means to sit, and up means with Him or close to Him. So, what has to go to God? Your mind, your heart has to go to God. That's upasana. If your heart is going to God, you're doing upasana. Chaitanya Mahaprabhuji says, Nadhanam, Najanam, Nasundarim, Kavitamba, Jagadish Kamaye, Mamajan, Manijan, Manishware, Bhavatad, Bhaktirahai, Tukitvai. He's asking for something from God, from Krishna. What does he ask for? Ahaituki bhakti. He says, give me devotion to your lotus feet, which is selfless. I don't want anything from you. Nadhanam, I don't want wealth. Najanam, I'm not asking you for a big family or people to like me. Nasundarim, I'm not asking you for a beautiful wife. Nakavitamva, I don't want to be famous as a writer or a poet. I just want selfless devotion to your lotus feet. Janmani, Janmani, in every birth. See, he's not asking for liberation. He says, I'm fine to be born in this world. You can make me be born in this world in any species, but on the condition that you give me bhakti, selfless bhakti in my heart. So why do the scriptures and saints say not to ask God for worldly things? Number one, if it's the mind that has to go to God, then Think about it. What have you set as your goal if you're asking God for a worldly thing? Whatever it may be, something for you personally or something for one of your children or your family or whatever it is. What is really in our heart at that time that we're asking God for that thing? Is God in our heart? No, that thing is in our heart. So are we doing upasana of God? No, we're doing upasana of the world. Take an example. Let's say you live out in the country somewhere where there's no hospital. But there's a country doctor. And maybe your child is ill one night with a very high fever. So you go in the middle of the night to the doctor's house to wake him up because he wasn't answering his phone. And you knock on his door and after a couple of minutes he comes looking bleary-eyed because you just woke him up. And he says, what? What is it? And you explain to him that your child is seriously ill. Please come. Please come and look after him. And the doctor says, no, 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 I don't make house calls in the middle of the night. I'll come and see him in the morning. And you fall at his feet, you're clutching the doctor's feet, crying tears. Are you doing bhakti of the doctor? Someone who just happened along 
To them it might look like, oh, this person has so much love for the doctor. Look, he's fallen at his feet. He's crying tears for the doctor. No, his bhakti is for his son. Those tears are for his son, not for the doctor. So when we ask God for any worldly thing, we are doing bhakti of the world, not of God, because we've got the world in our heart, not God. Then someone could ask us the question, have you not even realized yet that where is true happiness? Have you not understood that much? We'd say, what do you mean? Well, is happiness in the world or is it in God? Oh, no, no, no. All the scriptures say happiness is in God. And the happiness of the world is just elusive, temporary. But it seems by the way that you're practicing bhakti that you've made the world your aim. In fact, you're asking God for the world. You know real happiness is in God, not in the world. So when you pray to God, what are you asking for? The world. It makes about as much sense as if you walk into a market and there's a really good mitaiki dukan with all the best sweets. And you walk up to the shop owner and you say, uh, I want to buy some chappal. I want to buy some uh, sandals. Can you show me what the selection is? So that shop owner might think, well, maybe, you know, maybe where he's from, chappal means something else. Maybe it's a kind of sweet where he's from. So, uh, um, you know, can you see here that all we have are these sweets? And is any of these called chappal where you come from? He says, no, no, no. He takes off his chappal and he shows it to him. No, 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 this is what I want. One of these. The shop owner will think he's crazy. I'm selling sweets and you're asking me for chappal. Similarly, God himself is the very form of perfect happiness. And we go to him and we ask him for this world, which you could say is basically the form of unhappiness compared to God. It doesn't make sense. So it shows when we pray to God and we ask Him for worldly things, we haven't even understood what our goal is yet. Then how are we going to practice sadhana? If we're practicing any spiritual path, we, have, we should have a goal fixed in mind first, right? Why are we doing this? So, those of you who have heard my whole series of lectures, you know that our goal is perfect happiness which can only be attained through God-realization. So although it might be difficult for me to explain this to someone who hasn't heard the whole series, but those of you who have been here every day, this should be an easy logical step for you to make now. That yes, when the goal is God-realization, then why would I do bhakti to God and ask Him for worldly things? It means that I haven't even set my sights on the real target yet, so then how am I going to be successful? Number two, we all have a destiny. We all have the ability as human beings to perform free will actions but we also have our prarabd. Karmanan sanchitadhinam jivodhinas tathapi svatantra kriyamane vai krito bhagavata vida. A saint says that you do have svatantrata, independence, to think say and do whatever you want. That's your free will. As a human being, you have that right. But, you also have performed uncountable such free will actions in your uncountable past lifetimes, and you are not free to choose whether you undergo the consequences of those or not. You are free to perform the actions. You are not free to choose to undergo the consequences. You must. 
अवश्यमेव भोक्तव्यम कृतं कर्म शुभा शुभम इन महाभारत वेद व्यास जी राइट्स दैट अवश्यमेव भोक्तव्यम everyone must undergo the consequences of their previous actions na bhuktang chiyate karma kalpakoti shatairapi mahabharat again he says even a gyani a liberated gyani who is still in his body but he surrendered to god and got liberation for the time that he remains on this earth he still has to undergo his destiny can you imagine <laughs> he's liberated but for as long as he's on this earth he still has to undergo the destiny that was written in his name at the time he was born so if a great gyani paramahansa has to undergo his destiny then what to save ordinary people like us ज्ञानी भुगते ज्ञानते मूरख भुगते रोय the only difference between us and a gyani is the gyani is resigned to his fate he says whatever is going to happen good or bad let it happen and he's unaffected by it but murakh bhugate roya those who don't have that understanding they are deeply affected by the ups and downs of what happen in their daily life hani labh jeevan maran yash apyash vidhi hath so according to this law of karma you have these uncountable past actions waiting to fructify and at the time you were born in this life you were given a part of that not the whole thing the whole thing is called your sanchit karma that's an unlimited stock of past karmas so out of that unlimited stock god gave you a small part to undergo in this life that's called your prarabdh karma and simultaneously you can do kriyamana karma which means you're performing new actions every moment with your free will thinking and speaking and doing but some things that are going to happen to you are going to it's just part of your destiny so hani lab this means your financial state major financial state is predetermined by your past life's actions winning the lottery is not luck you earned it by giving a lot of charity in your last life and being poor in this life is not bad luck you just earned it <laughs> by not giving charity in your past life that's pretty much how it works however much we give that much we get back in the next life so those situations are predetermined hani labh jeevan marana yash apyash let's skip to yash and apyash having a good name or a bad name being famous or infamous that's also predetermined and jeevan the uh, situation that you're born into and marana marana means the actual time of your death is predestined to the second so these are the very things that we pray to god for aren't they we pray to god for money a better job a uh, promotion we pray to god for all of the things that are either determined by our destiny or they're in our hands like someone praying to saraswati at the last minute to help them pass their exam well it's not a question of saraswati helping you or not helping you how much did you study it's a combination of the intelligence that you were granted as part of your destiny you know what kind of a brain did you get okay that's part of it but then how much hard work did you put in now where does god come into that God doesn't enter into the picture why would god why would god interfere really either you studied or you didn't <laughs> god doesn't have anything to do with it 
So God follows laws as well. Don't think that, oh, God can do anything. We could make a whole book, a big thick book, if we started listing the things that God can't do. Is God all-powerful? Yes, but God follows certain rules. It's not a free-for-all. So God abides by the law of karma. We perform the actions, we have to undergo the consequence. Why would God overturn those laws for us? You see, even in the world, if you want to get a law changed that the worldly government has made, how many months or years does that take to get some new policy instituted or to change an old policy? It takes so long. So you think the laws of the spiritual government would be so easily overturned? That, uh, oh God, I want this thing. Is that easy, really? When, look at the divine history. Dasharat was a saint. He was Manu in his last life. He did devotion to God, became God, realized, and he got granted to have Ram as his son in his next life. God himself as his son. Now when Ram went to the jungle and Dasharat died, Ram is God. His own father is dying in his separation. And when he returns from the jungle, he finds out that father has passed away. Did it make a difference that Dasharat's son was God? No, he didn't save him. He didn't change what was planned. Abhimanyu. Think about who Abhimanyu was. His father is Arjun, a God-realized saint. Gita Gyani, Arjun. The, the Purohit who performed his marriage to Uttara was Veda Vyas, also a dissension of God. And his Mamaji, his maternal uncle, was Sri Krishna, Swayam Bhagwan. So what happens, Abhimanyu is killed through, you know, illegal means on the battlefield. And after it happens, Krishna, Vedavyas and Arjun, God, Swayam Bhagwan Shri Krishna, one of his avatar, Vedavyas and Gita Gyani Arjun, the three of them are sitting talking about how sad it is. They couldn't change it. They didn't change it. When it was Abhimanyu's time to go, it was his time to go. And we think that uh, by paying some Panditji to recite Mahamrityunjay Mantra, that our loved one is going to be saved. It doesn't make sense. Now, I understand that this is something some people have believed for their whole life. And sometimes it's hard to change a belief, but that's a sign of intelligence. When something is different than what you believe in, but it makes more logical sense than what you believe in, it's a sign of intelligence to be able to change your belief. That's a sign of intelligence and holding on to it in the face of all logic, holding on to the old belief, that's just stubbornness. It's not intelligence. So everybody can change their understanding just because we've believed something for our whole life doesn't make it right. If something makes sense, think about it and internalize it and then adopt that form of bhakti. There's a danger, in fact, to asking God for these worldly things. Because let's say someone prayed to God and asked for a son. Now, if it was in your destiny, you would have gotten the son anyway, whether you prayed to God or not. But the one who believes that God answers my prayers, then they think, well, I got the son because I prayed to God, even though it was a coincidence. So their faith goes up for God. So you'd say that's a good thing, right? Yeah, for that time it's a good thing. Then let's say their son gets sick. They again pray to God. Maybe they go to Vaishnava Devi and ask, please save my son. It was you I prayed to, to get the son. Now don't let him die at such a young age. 
let's say your son gets better because that was not his destined time to die. Again, coincidence. You happen to pray to God, he would have gotten better no matter what. Now let's say a couple of years later, again, he falls ill. This time you pray to God to help you. He's your only child, but it was his time to go and he goes. But you don't think that. You think that God ignored your prayer. I've met so many people who are angry with God because they think when something good happens to them, it's because God's smiling on them. And when something bad happens to them, God is just like you can say randomly making people suffer for no reason. So they get angry with God. How can we do bhakti with such wavering faith? Every time something that we want to happen happens to us, we say, Jai Ho Bhagwan. And every time something happens to us that we don't think is just, even though it's happening because of our past karmas, then we blame God. So our faith diminishes or even people become Gnostic. I've met people who say, I don't believe in God. Why? Because so-and-so died. So even if God saves so and so, how long will they say will he save them? How how long do you want them to live? I mean, do you want him God to save him when that person is 50 years old too and then again pray for their life when God when he's 80 years old and God saves him again and then he's 100 years old, pray for him again, God's how, how long will he go on saving him? Everyone has to die at some point. So that moment of death is predestined. It has nothing to do with praying to God or not praying to God. Anyway, what kind of God would God be if you were that kind of businessman? That if you pray to me, then I'll do this thing for you. I'll favor you in this way. And those who don't pray to me, well, yes, you're my children as well, but you're not getting my grace. So that's not the kind of God anyone wants to believe in. It's just that we never thought of it in that way. Like if um, someone prays for someone else. A lot of people do that, but think about it logically. So many people are suffering in the world. Does God not know that they're suffering? He knows. They're not suffering because he's making them suffer. They're suffering because that's the consequence of their past actions. Now, would it be fair if God noticed, oh, you're praying for that person because they're suffering? And this other person is also suffering because they performed a similar action in their past life, but no one's praying for them. So let them suffer, but I'll help this person because someone was praying for them. That's not the kind of God I want to believe in. I want a logical God, okay, who follows certain sensible rules. And God does follow a sensible set of rules. And it goes like this. Every soul is bound to undergo the consequences of their past karma until sarvadharman parityajya mamekam sharanam vraja aham tvam sarvapapebhyo mokchayishyami once you completely surrender to God, then he eliminates all of your sanchit karma. He completely erases it. Then you're free from all of that at the time you become God-realized. So there's two situations. Either we're not God-realized, like all of us, so we're undergoing our karma, past karma, or we are God-realized, in which case all of that is burnt. So once we understand this, then we know, oh yes, okay, asking God for worldly things does not make logical sense, when in fact my goal is God-realization, why don't I ask God for himself, or ask him for his divine vision, or his divine bhakti? Now, there's one other point to consider in this, which is that even if God did fulfill our wishes, let's set aside this whole philosophy that God doesn't, doesn't grant worldly boons. Even if he did, what would the use of it be? Seriously, what's he going to give us that we haven't already experienced? 
In uncountable lifetimes, we've been king, we've been queen, we've been president, we've been a movie star, we've been Miss Universe. We've been and done everything. We're still, look where we are today. We're in the very same place we've always been. Dissatisfied, looking for more, enjoying somewhat in this world, but wanting more. And then when we pray to God for worldly things, what are we asking Him for? More of the same which has never satisfied us up until now. So why not ask Him for that one thing that would satisfy us forever? Him. (laughs) Only when a soul attains Him, the soul becomes Purnakam, perfectly happy forever. So this uh, asking God is like a bimari. It is. It just goes on because the more you get, the more you have to ask for anyway, right? I mean, when would it ever be enough? You ask God for a million dollars, a week later you'll think of being a billionaire because you'll get bored of being a millionaire. But I can't even buy a house in the Hamptons with a million dollars. God, give me a billion dollars. Then I could afford the house in the Hamptons and a helicopter to get out there and back and avoid the traffic. That would be great. Then if he gave you that, then you'd think, no, that's not enough. It'd be great to have one in Hawaii as well. Oh, yeah, I hear the weather there is great year-round. But then I'd also need a private jet to get to Hawaii and back. So the desires just go on multiplying. Even if God fulfilled our each and every desire, we wouldn't stop asking him. (laughs) Don't think that, okay, God, just grant me this one wish and I'll never ask you for anything ever again. He would grant us that wish and within a week we'd be thinking, oh, but how about just one more? (laughs) It's like when you tell your kids to go to bed, just five more minutes, just five more minutes, one more video game. So there are other important reasons as well why we should not ask God for worldly things when we're on the path of bhakti, but I'll be explaining those when we continue tomorrow.